powerful person. And like his father before him, and we know this from secular records, really the only thing that drives Herod is an unrestrained uh, pursuit of uh, wealth, uh, sex, and, 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 uh, and power. Money, money, sex, and power. That's what Herod Antipas lives for. That's why, or that's what most of the Herodian dynasty and, and that, that Herod family live for. It's pretty scathing to even read the secular accounts of uh, that family. You, you can just Google stuff and find out what uh, other historians thought of that family. They were very immoral. They were very vile. They were very corrupt. Exploitation and corruption were just a, a, a hallmark of their ruler, of their ruling. So Herod has this worldview where the whole point of life is just to accumulate as much pleasure as possible, money, sex, and power. And yet, here's this guy, and he seems to be living for something else that, that I, he couldn't even reconcile John with his worldview. He's like, John has, he's off in the desert. He's voluntarily submitted himself to all kinds of voluntary poverty, uh, simplicities, preaching about the kingdom of God, uh, he's turned his back. He's never going to have access to uh, certainly uh, money and sex, but, Herod says, but he does have access to power. And I think that's what Herod was fascinated by because we read in the Gospels that thousands of people would come to John in the wilderness to be baptized by him. They, he had power. He had no army. He had no weapons. He had no armor. He had no... Uh, military or within the dominant culture any status to speak of but he had power and he had influence and Herod was puzzled by this how can this be John possessed a personal gravitas he, he possessed a certain weight out of the fact that he was so righteous that Herod um, was just drawn to him in the strange fascination so Herod wants to keep him alive Herod doesn't really want to kill John Finally, verse 21, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a, gave a great banquet for all his high officials and military commanders, the leading men of Galilee. So this is a huge party. It's the who's who of the cultural elite. And when the daughter of Herodias, uh, historical records say this was probably uh, a girl named Salome. This was Herod's niece. Okay, so this is Herod's, his wife and, and Philip uh, had a daughter. So this is the daughter. So this is Herod's niece. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me anything that you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? Not, not, not even a moment's pause, right? The head of John the Baptist. Herodias says, that would, be, that would be the cherry on top to this banquet. Give me the head of John the Baptist. So at once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist in the platter. And the king, Herod, was greatly distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he didn't want to refuse her, so he immediately sent an executioner with the orders to bring John's head. And the man went and he beheaded John in prison and he brought back his head on a platter. For a Jewish person, this is tremendously dishonorable. Jews had a strong theology of the body. You weren't even supposed to tattoo your body because this is the body that God gave you. And to desecrate the body was a tremendous form of humiliation. 
So it's not just that John gets killed, but he gets his body right, cut apart and then served on a platter at a banquet, right? As if it's the, the just desserts. I mean, it's a really sickening, horrific scene. The executioner presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. And on hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. I spent a lot of time this week trying to figure out how to add some levity into this sermon. <laughs> I was like, hey, could, is there like a joke in here somewhere? Or is there like some kind of just fun we could have? Or like, do I have any stories? And you just realize that's not doing justice to the text. Mark wants this whole account to just gut us, as my uh, kind of British friend would say. You know, this, is, this is a scripture that's meant to just gut you. It's meant to make you just feel anger and sorrow and be perplexed at the injustice and the cruelty of it. But there are four myths that I think when we look at this text, um, four myths that I think many people hold to that upon studying this text, they're, they're no longer tenable. They shatter these myths. And the first myth is this. Following Jesus means a life free from tragedy. And I won't just say suffering there, although that's true, of course, but I want to say tragedy. This isn't just an episode of someone suffering. This is a tragedy. Jesus said of John in Matthew 11, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, no one's arisen greater than John the Baptist. Jesus says, from my perspective, John's the greatest prophet, the greatest man who's ever lived. And this is his end? The, the, like, second maybe only to Jesus, in Jesus' own words, that just, this John the Baptist guy is a great, great, godly, righteous man. And the end of his life is being served on a platter. I was talking about this with my kids this week, or just Kara, or she's seven, and she was like, and I was talking about it, and she said, she, she said the question that everyone should ask when they read, and probably the first readers asked when you heard this for the first time or read it for the first time. I told her the story, and her first thing out of her mouth was, why didn't Jesus save John? Why didn't Jesus protect John? It's a good question. And this is why it's so important to read the Bible narratively as a story and to read all of the Bible, not just parts of it. Because if you cherry-pick your scriptures, you can come up with a theology that says God is good all the time, and what that means is I am good all the time, and I am victorious all the time, and I am prosperous all the time, and I'm in control all the time, and... I am thriving and overachieving all the time by God's grace. But you can't sustain a theology like that if you're drawing from the entire council of Scripture. If you look at the whole story and some of the sub-stories, like the story of John the Baptist's life, a biblical theology says this side of heaven, no one's immune to suffering and no one is immune to tragedy. Because we live in a sinful, fallen, broken world. And for all kinds of reasons, tragedy befalls people. And this is important to emphasize because I think there are a lot of people, especially when you're younger, you kind of presume one of the big benefits to becoming a Christian is that God's going to protect you from lots of bad things or like the worst things. And absolutely, Scripture declares, everybody in this room, I hope, would have a story where they could say, this is where God 
saved me out of this or delivered me from this. I could tell you stories of God's protection supernaturally and deliverance. But God does not always save us from suffering. That's probably not news to anybody in this room. That's clearly the case. And sometimes God doesn't save out of tragedy either. And we don't always know the reasons why. Scripture says sometimes God saves us through our suffering. But when you read the whole counsel of Scripture, what you find is people who understand that and follow God anyway. See, a lot of people are following God and following Jesus as long as things are working out for them. Then it doesn't work out. They're like, ooh, yeah, that's not what I signed up for. We have to have a faith like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3 where they were asked to worship, bow down and worship the idol. It says, or, or uh, on threat of being thrown into a furnace, they say, hey, king, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from, us, from it. He, our, our God is totally capable of saving us out of that furnace. Then they say, and he will rescue us from your hand. He's capable of saving us from that, from that furnace, and he will. He'll save us from you, O king, if we don't obey you and if we honor him. Their next words are, even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you've set up. My God is absolutely able to save. I have no, qual- I have no doubts about that. My God will save me. Even if he doesn't, I will still follow God. I'm not following God on condition of my personal safety. I'm not following God on condition of my personal happiness. I'm not following God on condition of whether it's working for me. I'm following God because he is God and I'm not. He's the king, I'm the servant. He is good all the time and I will live to honor him even if it costs me greatly. That is real biblical faith. The great promise to Christians is not that you will never experience suffering or tragedy, but as Romans 8 says, in all things, including in suffering and tragedy, God will work for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. There's always a redemptive arc through our suffering and tragedy as Christians. And actually, as Mark's gospel unfolds, one of the shocking things that the first uh, uh, apostles and the first disciples begin to piece together that's actually frightening for a lot of them is wait a second, as I'm watching Jesus and listening to him and participating in his ministry, it seems like more suffering is coming into my life. And we're experiencing greater tragedy than if we would just would have said, oh, it's okay, we'll just live life and kind of fit into Rome and do whatever. So there's a big theme that we're going to see as Mark continues to unfold that actually following Jesus will lead to greater suffering in our life. And we'll talk about that more in the months to come about why that is. Number two, second myth, this passage, I think, completely destroys, is that committing to Jesus isn't a necessary thing. You read this account and you realize, if you, if you stay with the account and play it out in your mind's eye, Herod actually had lots of opportunities to change his life. He heard about Jesus, he heard about the gospel, he listened to John, he was fascinated. He was like, yeah, this is neat, strangely beautiful, I don't quite get it, but... Yeah, he was listening, but he never put his trust in Jesus. He never crosses that line. His unbelief, and we'll talk about this in a moment, and his, ultimately, I think, his desire to hold on to his power, which allowed him to access money and sex and pleasure, 
kind of blinded him, controlled him, it, it, it enslaved him. He could never fully embrace John's call to repentance, to turn from his evil ways and to embrace Jesus and to now start living for that king. That was going to threaten a lot of things that Herod held dear. And there's a warning here. You know, don't just think you can play with ideas about Jesus and that's enough. Yeah, I kind of, I went to Sunday school when I was a kid and I believe, I believe in God. You know, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, I, I think Jesus was a great teacher, taught a lot of good stuff about love. I've read a few parts of the Bible, I think, here and there. Jesus is neato. I respect him. He's kind of up there with Buddha and some spiritual gurus that I follow. Jesus is a great teacher. He's a great prophet. These are ideas. They're very important ideas, but they are insufficient ideas to save you or to justify you before God. Herod, if you would have said... Do you think Jesus is a great teacher? Oh, for sure, and so is John. Great stuff, really interesting. Kind of tickles my imagination. But he never actually gives his life and his heart to Jesus. Speaking of the final judgment in Matthew 7, Jesus says, you know, on that day, many people are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, same word, doubled, right? Emphasis, emotional. Pleading, Lord, emotional, Lord, you're, I, I've always believed you're Lord. You're Lord. Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And Jesus says, then I'm going to tell them very plainly. I'm just going to look them in the eye and say, I never knew you. See, I was just an idea to you. I was a concept. I wasn't a personal relationship. I wasn't, a, I wasn't your friend, and that was on you because you kept me at bay. Maybe you came on Sundays and you listen or you came to church a few times a year or you picked up a book once in a while and read some stuff and then thought about it and maybe even threw up a few prayers once in a while. But you never actually committed your life to me. I, I, don't, I actually don't know who you are. That's a real warning in this passage. Believing things about Jesus is not the same as putting your faith and trust in him. Repenting of living life as you see fit, asking him to forgive you and to save you and to empower you to live life as he sees fit, that is the beginning of new life in Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. You are not born again. You are not saved. You are not part of the family of God unless you have committed your life to Jesus. So don't stay in unbelief like Herod did. Listen to voices that are pointing you towards Jesus, but do more than just listen to them or consider them. Follow through on them. That's really, really important. Myth number three, hedonism is harmless. Hedonism is the ethical theory that pleasure, in the sense of we have desires, bodily appetites, sexual, physical, relational, and the highest good and the proper aim of life is to satisfy those desires. We are hungry, we should eat. We are thirsty, we should drink. We are sexually aroused, we should, have, we should satisfy that sexually. Many people today live as hedonists, although they might not use that word because it tends to have a bit of a negative connotation even within our culture. But that's functionally what they're doing. They see their passions, their innate desires as appetites that they're entitled to fulfill. This is the way I am. Some might even say this is the way God made me. And a lot of people use the idols of money, sex, and power as the focal points through which they try and satisfy their hedonism. And we see from the story, Herod is driven by hedonistic lust. He's probably drunk at the party. Um, he has a lust for power. He has a lust for social status. He invites all the bigwigs to this party. He's driven by sexual lust, such, such that 
an erotic dance from his niece is enough for him to make just a obviously foolish drunken oath that he'll give her up to half his kingdom. We actually see in Herod a person trapped by their own pursuit of pleasure. He's, his desires have, have overrun him. And that's why the Bible is very clear directly in some cases and indirectly through these passages to say we have to be very careful about the desires that we allow um, to, the desires that we're cultivating and nurturing in our life and the desires that we're feeding. The Bible directly and indirectly warns against hedonism, just the blind, reckless, selfish pursuit of pleasure again and again and again. Whether that hyper-desire is uh, sexual in nature or material or social, if we don't identify that desire and take steps to curb it and ultimately to kill it and replace it, because desire and pleasure um, are not bad things, but unmoored from Christ they are, if we, don't re- if we don't replace hedonism with Christian hedonism, where we learn to get our pleasure and our joy from serving and loving God, and he's the object of our pleasure, it's, I mean, just tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people every year shipwreck their lives. And yet, culturally, we just say, yeah, this is just the way it's supposed to be. Like, no one has any right to tell me how to live, certainly not God. Thou shalt not? Who does God think he is to tell me thou shalt? This is what I want to do. I feel this strongly, therefore I'm entitled to it. It's a dangerous way. Herod's lust eventually leads to John's death. All all out-of-control desire leads to death. Herod didn't want John dead. Herodias did. Herod didn't. It was an unintended consequence of his inability to control his lust. How many lives today are destroyed because of the reckless reckless and selfish pursuit of self-satisfaction? People have a desire for something. They decide they're entitled to pursue it. And they want to satisfy that desire. They give very little thought to the broader personal, relational, social consequences that fulfilling that desire might have. They don't even imagine, hey, maybe not all the desires that my heart is coming up with are actually good and should even be nurtured. Maybe some of them need to be curbed or killed or replaced. Hedonism is not harmless. And last, the last myth I think this passage undercuts is that death and evil and injustice have the last laugh, that they have the final word. If you're at this dinner party and you leave, if you're a God-fearing person who hears about this party afterwards and what happened, you're probably tempted to think the same thing that we all tend to think when you hear about terrorism over here or these violence happening over here or wars happening over here. It just feels like, like good things happen, for sure, but the evil is overwhelming. And death and injustice and corruption and exploitation and tyranny and evil, it does seem to get the final word. Right, look at this story. John's this great guy. All those momentum and mark. The kingdom is breaking forth, and John's beheaded, and his disciples have to come recompose his body together, right? Put the pieces back together and then bury him in a tomb. And they're walking away. What are they thinking? Herodias seems to have the last laugh. I think there's many times, maybe especially now, where it's very tempting to think 
that death and injustice and evil and suffering have the final say. But I think Mark intentionally throws us one last curveball and says, I I don't want you to fall to that temptation. That's actually not true. See, notice in this account, Mark refers to Herod Antipas as the king throughout this passage. That's actually not his title. There was King Herod. After that, the kingship was broken up into different tetrarchs who were sub-rulers over different regions in, uh, in, in Israel. But Mark refers to Herod as a king. That's what Herod wants to be known as, as a king. But he's actually only a tetrarch. He's less than a king. And Mark is trying to show us, this is, here's the king of the Jews. Here's, here's one of the ruling kings that people can devote themselves to. But look at this king. Look at how he's driven by money and sex and power. Look at how he has no control. Look at what he does to his enemies. Look how powerless he is to stand up to his wife who's asking an unjust thing, even though he knows it's unjust and he doesn't want it to happen. But he's powerless. He's, he's, he's like a reed uh, swayed in the way. He'll just bend to whatever the uh, culture and whatever the zeitgeist of the age is. He's so pathetic. He's no king. He has no principles beyond self-satisfaction. And Mark puts his gospel together and certainly the rest of the gospel after this point to show us that he's pointing us towards a very different kind of king. This is a king who has absolute power but it doesn't end up corrupting him at all. Mark is revealing to us a king that doesn't use his power or abuse his position in a way that has his enemies brought to him in a mocking, humiliating way. This is a king who allows himself to be humiliated and allows himself to be mocked and allows himself to be killed. For who? For his enemies. And not just the rich and the powerful and the elite, but the poor and the powerless, the nobodies. This is a king who will live and die for people that the power structures in this world look at and say, they're worthless, what good are they? They're nobodies. See, Herod is the false king who's puzzled as to why anyone would commit their lives to someone like Jesus when you could just throw yourself into a world and immerse yourself in power and pleasure. Why would you listen to this Jesus who talks about serving other people, turning the other cheek, loving your enemies, going the extra mile, taking up your cross. Herod, until he died, was perpetually puzzled by this. But John the Baptist, he puzzled it together. He, he, he got the pieces together. He understood it. And he followed through in it. And so did thousands of the first Christians. Jesus is the true king who offered up his body for the sake of his enemies. Jesus is the king whose resurrection reveals that evil does not win. Evil does not have the final word. Death doesn't have the final word. In the resurrection, Jesus is called in the New Testament simply the first fruits. He's the trailer for the big coming attraction movie of resurrection. Resurrection will have the last word. God's redemptive love will have the last word. Resurrection is coming. And when it happens and upon Jesus' return... Revelation 19 says there's going to be a banquet throne. And it's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
In Revelation 19, 6-9, John is given a vision of this gospel. This is obviously a different John than John the Baptist, John the Apostle. It says, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And the angel added, These are the true words of God. Death and evil and injustice do not have the final word if you are a Christian. Evil doesn't win. Jesus does. And John's life ended on account of a banquet but John's resurrection life will begin again with another one. And on that day, John will be resurrected and restored, given a new glorified body, imperishable, immortal, glorified by Jesus himself. And so will you and I, if we have placed our faith and trust in Jesus and committed our lives to him here and now. Let's pray. God, we love you. And God, in our world, especially today, a heightened sense of, of danger, a heightened awareness of death and evil and destruction, may this scripture, as dark as it is, um, lead us as it does into your light and into your hope. We can live without a fear of death. Our lives belong to you. No one can take them from us. Help us to live with that holy boldness and holy confidence. Help us to live for you, to replace hedonism with Christian hedonism, to lean into you, to love you heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Please, God, use this text mightily in our hearts and lives this week. In Jesus' name, amen.